G'day guys, and welcome to another episode of The Glory Days. This one is an absolute beauty, taking a look back at one of the greatest ever years in the Ovens and Murray Football League, and the part that the Myrtleford Football Club played in it. This season had everything. Controversy, disputes, passion, high scoring, and one of the greatest ever players to pull on the boots. And of course, some fun and games from a bunch of local larrikins who took Myrtleford on one hell of a ride. Before we start, a big thank you to our episode sponsor, Terry Cartwright Kitchens, who have been manufacturing and installing quality kitchens, cabinets, vanity units, wall units, and more to clients in the Ovens, King and Kiwa Valleys and surrounding districts for more than 30 years. Owner Jeff Mitchell was quality on the field in 1983 and still is now off the field at Terry Cartwright Kitchens. Okay, let's go, Robbie. When you talk Myrtleford and it's time in the Ovens Murray Football League, the topic generally turns to its one and only Premiership year, 1970. But there was another year at the Saints that was nothing short of remarkable. A year when the small town in the Alpine region of northeast Victoria created a stepping stone for one of the greatest ever players in AFL slash VFL history to reignite his career. His name was Gary Ablett, and this is the story of his time in Myrtleford. The year was 1983, and Myrtleford, after mediocre seasons in both 1981 and 1982, when they won just four games in each of those years, were on the rebound and building a very handy list. Greg Nichols was appointed captain coach, being recruited from Ainsley after having been at Turvey Park in 1980 and 81. Nichols played one senior game for Geelong in 1979. Nichols was best on ground with six goals in Ainsley's premiership win in 1982. It capped off a remarkable year, with Nichols also taking up the Mulrooney medal for the best and fairest player in the ACT AFL. He also kicked 93 goals for the year. Ainsley's captain coach and former St Kilda VFL legend, Kevin Cowboy Neal, kicked 125 to be the league's leading goal kicker. Nichols was employed at the Railway Hotel, which was owned by sports nut Peter Terry. Business boomed as passionate Saints supporters made it a home base. Nichols was a classic centre-half forward with a booming accurate kick and a strong pair of hands that could take mark after mark. Nichols explained how he made his way to Myrtleford and Gun Rover, Terry Burgess, explained Nichols was a great coach. They contacted me and asked if I would be interested. Uh, there were a couple other clubs made contact. Not sure what they're called now, but Shepherd and United were a bit of a powerhouse in the Golden Valley and they yep. contacted me. Um, I think my price might have uh, probably <laughs> turned them off. Uh, and then Myrtleford rang up. I wanted to coach again. Um, what, 1982 was a yeah, pretty good year. We yeah. went through undefeated at Ainsley. Um, and I enjoyed playing under Cowboy, but I just thought I, I wanted to uh, test myself again as a coach. And they came up with a, a pretty good offer. And more importantly, they had they came to the table with a list of recruits that they'd secured. Um, and that gave me confidence that I wasn't going there just for the money. I, I'd like to win. I'm not, you know, I got to the extent when we lost the preliminary final, I didn't even bother going to the grand final. Yeah. Uh, I thought we were unjustly treated the week before. And uh, to me, I couldn't care. I, and I only discovered last year, I think, Lamington actually beat Aubrey in the grand final. So that's how much interest I had in wow. it after, after we lost. Um, no, that sounds a bit juvenile, but I thought we probably had the best team in the competition that year and for a little town like that it, uh, it wasn't uh, the romantic uh, result that we were looking for. I think um, I reached club about the second or third practice match and I hadn't met Greg, I'd only heard some dialogue through my father and the people up there and but the first thing that struck me was he was just a very impressive uh, man and had a great aura about him. Um, communication was first class and he was well organised. It's a bit like um, the AFL players and that and the guys that know he was at that. Greg had the ability to kick goals from a long way out. He probably got the older seven of his goals around the arc. He was thumping. Of course, he needed to be because he was close to goals because there wasn't enough room for uh, uh, Russ Cutlick and Ablett uh, in the same area. So um, the combination meant the whole three of them gave us, gave us near firepower. 
Goal-kicking machine Peter Russ-Cutlick had moved to Bright with employment in the aged care industry and brought with him an amazing goal-kicking record. The superbly built blonde-headed Russ-Cutlick had played 10 games at Fitzroy between 1975 and 1976 and another four at Geelong in 1977 before he moved to Sydney. It was his time at Geelong where he first met Greg Nichols. Playing for Sydney, he went on a gold-scoring frenzy in a three-year period that yielded an incredible 505 goals in three seasons. He booted 136 in 1979, 156 in 1980, and then an amazing 213 in 1981. That is still a national record for a major league competition. Greg Nichols knew he had a beauty in Russ Cutlick and a few others, including Gary Ablett. Peter had signed on. He didn't want to coach. And I think when he said, I'm sure that, and I don't know this for a fact, but I assume that they uh, had approached Peter to see if he would coach. He wasn't inclined to do that. And then I don't know how they got in contact with me, but they did. Mm. And uh, But Pete was on, on the list. I played footy with him at Geelong, uh, albeit in the resis. So I knew Peter, I knew his record up in the Sydney Football League and um, it was just, you know, he was icing on the cake in a sense because if you, not that we had Ablett at that stage, but we had the spine was, you know, Bobby McNamara representing the O&M, uh, one of the best men you could ever uh, come across. A fellow called Peter Light was in our back, could have been a, an O&M in our back, uh, we had Bimbo Wales and uh, myself at Senna Forward and Peter at full forward. So our spine was yeah. pretty strong. And that, well, Len came and seen me in uh, late March and said, uh, my nephew is coming up. Uh, you know, I want him to play footy. Uh, can you have a chat to him? Lenny brought him in. Uh, there was a formality. I'd, he'd played half a dozen games for Hawthorne at that stage. Uh, done some nice things. And if you're good enough to make the Hawthorne team at that time, then I think you've, <laughs> you're a start-up for the yeah. Saints team. So uh, he um, he was a challenge. Because <laughs> he was, he's like a two-year-old colt. He just uh, see ball, get ball. Um but no, yeah, the, the reality was he was wasted sitting up there when he could play in the centre and get 30 possessions, 35 possessions, yeah, week in, week out, um, and pumble the ball down all the time. And when you got a full forward as good as Peter, I think Peter probably kicked 80, 85. I think I kicked 60-odd. We um, it was a lot to do with... You know, the calibre of players like Bimbo and, and Terry and, and obviously Gary. There was more good news when both Ian Wales and Terry Burgess returned to the Saints after doing a pre-season at North Melbourne. Burgess and Wales had played in two intra-club practice matches with Burgess breaking the North Melbourne club pre-season 15-minute endurance run with second place in that event going to Andrew Demetriou, who would later go on to be the AFL chairman. Despite both lads impressing at North, the Cracker Brothers, along with King Hodgman, swayed Kangaroos coach then, Barry Cable, that they'd had enough midfielders, so Burgess and Wales headed home to Myrtleford. The pair arrived back in time for the last two practice matches, both against North Aubrey, with the final game being a win in the pre-season final under lights at Lavington. They beat North Aubrey in the final round of the qualifiers to make the grand final, where they beat the Hoppers again by three points in a thrilling grand final. Terry Burgess talks about his pre-season at North Melbourne. Yeah, it was a great experience. Um, myself and then Wales and North and uh, with the Ovens of Murray, we the zoned area. We invited down, but we decided we'd go down, have a crack and a little pre-season. Um, we lived with Brendan Ryan down at North Melbourne in 19 at that stage and a bit of Densley. And um, they, and they teed up a little bit of work for us, working with a construction company, LU Simon, and uh, we um, trained outside that. So 
you know, it was a great experience because we got some Barry Cable and the Crackers and all those type of players and, and uh, exposure to the level of training that was great. And no doubt going through that whole scenario did it along the way too, like, um, you know, going on. You know, I was lucky enough to represent uh, North Melbourne, what they call back then the Battle of the Codes with the, yeah. the, the rugby and the soccer players. We're at Olympic Park and a range of track and from yep. to see who was supposedly the sport. So uh, I represent Melbourne. It was great. Uh, and combine that with playing some practice matches. And while, you know, while it's in hindsight and experience, you know that in training at that level, you gain out of that to come back to any base competition a fair way ahead of the, the rest of the um, competition. So no doubt that happened for me and Susan. Jeff Ramstyle, he'd moved to Myrtleford from Yarrawonga with work while Tony Diesel Fisher had moved across from Wangaratta Magpies. Robbie Wright made the move over from Tasmania. Myrtleford had a good connection with Tasmania and recruited many great players out of the island. Wright fitted in very nicely across halfback. Andrew Douglas and George Burrows arrived from the Ovens and King League, while big Russ France had returned from injury and Bert Hollands returned after a two-year coaching stint at Detarang Mount Beauty. A strong nucleus of the Saints' successful under-18 side from the late 70s were also starting to hit their straps with 12 of those players in the current senior team. The biggest recruit to land in the history of the Ovens and Murray League was yet to arrive, but negotiations in the Ablett family were well and truly underway. Len Ablett, who has the club rooms at the McNamara Reserve named after him, was a legend of the Myrtleford Football Club and was keeping in contact with his brother Alf, who lived in Druin. Lenny had played 70 games for Richmond and in his final year won a premiership with the Tigers in 1943 before returning to coach and play with Myrtleford, where he also became president in almost six decades of service as a player, coach and administrator. He was Mr Myrtleford. His brother Alf had five sons and three daughters, with three of them playing VFL, AFL. Jeff played 229 games at stints with Hawthorne, Richmond and St Kilda, while Kevin played 39 matches in his time at Hawthorne, Richmond and Geelong. Younger son Gary played six reserve grade games for Hawthorne in 1981 and then made his senior debut in round two, 1982. He played just six senior games before his dislike for city life and absenteeism from training had coach Alan Jeans and the club decide to part ways with him. Alf and Len Ablett both agreed that Gary should relocate to Myrtleford for the 1983 season and make a new start and play for the Saints in the Ovens and Murray Football League. Ian Wales, who's current president of the Myrtleford Football Netball Club and teammate of Ablett in 1983, explained how Ablett arrived in the town. I was working in the hotel at the time, so you work weekend, Myrtleford Hotel that is, and work weekends and different things. And the talk was that someone, they were around the footy club, they wanted someone to go down and pick him up in Druin at his house and then take him into Glenferry Oval and get the clearance signed and yep. get back. And a, fella, a mate of mine by the name of Clive Pigden, he had a nice BMW back then, so we jumped in that car and we left with Gary in the car. So you had to Druin first? That was it. Out to, out to Druin to his mum and dad's and met them, had a chat to them and then we jumped in the car, he ate a few things, not much, and then we into um, Glenfrey Oval to get the clearance signed. So was there sort of already agreement in place that the clearance would be good to go, that, you know, they'd come to that arrangement? I think it must have been at that stage. I wasn't necessarily told much. Clive might have had a bit more of a handle on that, but I'd say Terry Burgess and uh, Terry Burgess Senior and uh, Len Ablett would have had it all organised from ready to go, I'd say. So there you had it. The Saints, under new coach Greg Nichols, had recruited well, and unbeknown to them, we're going to get a further recruit in May. Let's see how it all unfolded. The hype leading into the round one clash with defending Premier's Aubrey was through the roof after the Saints' thrilling three-point pre-season grand final win over North Aubrey. The Tigers at home unfurled its first Premiership flag in 16 years after it had beaten Lavington in the 1982 decider. The 1983 season was also the first time the two-umpire system was introduced into the Ovens and Murray Football League. In one of the best matches seen at the Aubrey Sports Ground for some time, both sides booted 20 goals each in a game described as more like a grand final than a round one encounter. Both forward lines had firepower to burn and class everywhere with Russ Cutlick and Tigers Darrell Bakes 
kicking seven goals each. Greg Nichols booted five with Jeff Ramsdale and Terry Burgess in great touch. In a tense final quarter, Aubrey kicked the last two goals of the game to win by eight points. Despite the loss, it was apparent that the Saints were a force to be reckoned with. This game also featured the debut of a young Matthew Crisp. Round two and the first home match for the season against Coral Rubberglen. The Saints had lost Tony Fisher for three weeks after he was found guilty of striking in round one. 12 goals from Peter Russ Cutlick set up a 21-point win for Myrtleford, although the lead at three-quarter time was 45 points. For the second week in a row, the Saints had kicked 20 goals plus. Former teammate of Russ Cutlick at East Sydney, Stewie Allen, played with him during this three-year span when he kicked over 500 goals between 1979 and 81. Stewie Allen said Russ Cutlick was a champion. So, Stewie, tell us about Peter Russ Cutlick. He must have been an absolute freak. Uh, he was. He was um, just phenomenal. Wasn't a, a reasonably overhead mark, yep. but just so strong. Toe-to-toe, uh, -to -toe, uh, you couldn't beat him. So we just isolated him in front and just put it up there and out muscle blokes. Do the rest. So good. I mean, I, at footy training, I'd be always trying to get him. And I'd, if I got one out of ten off him, I'd be doing well. <laughs> it was it was um, phenomenal. No, no, it was amazing. I, I can remember in, in one period, one four-week period in that time, he kicked 22. 2018 and 24 in a wow. four-week period. Yep. But a very, a very humble bloke. Just one of the boys. Um, nothing pretentious about him. Um, just a re very nice bloke. Another home game and another bumper crowd, and another big win over Wangaratta as the Saints moved into fourth place on the ladder as they booted 24 goals to Wangaratta's 14. Highlight of the game was a scintillating 13-goal second quarter as the Saints ran riot. Russ Cutlick seven goals and Nichols six feasted on the brilliant midfield work of Ian Wales, Jeff Mitchell and Terry Burgess. Next up was a trip to Yarrawonga, with star fullback Bobby McNamara making his return to the side after breaking two wrists in the pre-season competition. It was an indifferent performance from the Saints with Yarrawonga set to cause a major upset when they led by 10 points into the last quarter. However, Ian Wales and Terry Burgess fired the midfield and the dynamic duo of Russ Cutlick and Nichols, 10 goals between them, got the Saints home by 28 points. Round five and one of the biggest ever crowds to attend a game at Myrtleford were on hand as Myrtleford pushed the Saints all the way. Close to 3,000 spectators watched a bruising and rugged encounter as Myrtleford got home by 12 points thanks to its unheralded backline. With such a high scoring and brilliant forward line, it was the backs led by Bob McNamara, Steve Martin, Peter Light, Jeff Ramsdale and David Mattisoni who won the game. Peter Russ Cutlick kicked five goals as the Saints win-loss record of four wins, one loss lifted them into the top three for the first time in the season. Next up, and a trip to Button Park, North Albury to take on the second-placed Hoppers who had lost just one game and were a side known for its pace and rapid ball movement. The Saints' strength was its height and marking ability up forward. If it had a perceived weakness, it was a lack of pace. The result vindicated all of the above, as North Aubrey turned on a stunning brand of running football that should have resulted in a bigger final margin than 22 points. North dominated the second term, but kicked one goal 10, while in the third, they kicked seven goals eight, to lead at the last change by 43 points. A seven goal final term saved some grace for the Saints, with David Mattisoni, Jeff Ramsdale, and Terry Burgess the best. This lost, dropped Myrtleford back into fourth place. Lavington's last year's runners-up were leading the way as the season completed one-third mark. The disappointing loss was quickly forgotten as the last of the pre-season chat between the Ablett brothers, Len and Alf, was about to get serious with Alf's youngest son, Gary, ready to make the move up north. Word had got around at training on the Tuesday night that this Gary Ablett was coming to town. Jeff Mitchell said it was the local copper who leaked the news out. Gary Ablett was on the way and the cat was getting out of the bag on the Tuesday night, I hear. Yeah, Robbie, I, um, I've rocked up the training and um, one of our committee men who was the local police sergeant, Tommy Delaney, was standing just in front of the dressing room door and as I walked in, he called me over and whispered into my ear. He said, hey, Mitch, um, Gary Ablett's coming to play for us, but don't tell anyone. So I'm, okay, so I'm going into the room and someone else is coming behind me and Tommy's called him over and said, 
Hey, um, Bobby, <laughs> Gary Ablett's coming to Myrtleford, but don't tell anyone. Anyway, Tommy proceeded to tell every player that came in the door that Gary Ablett's coming to town to play for Myrtleford, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> then he so he's um, then proceeded to tell the thirty or forty spectators who were there that Gary Ablett's coming to town and not to tell anyone. So there's seventy people. At the footy ground, 40 out on the track and 30 standing there and no one was talking because no one wanted to say anything in case they let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> a bit like the World Series <laughs> cricket days, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then uh, then uh, it sort of got out the next day. I'd say Tom did his walk around as a police sergeant, did his yep. walk around and let it out all over town. And <laughs> then, yeah, by Thursday he had rocked up and it was true. Which uh, was a bit of a surprise because um, Tommy's nickname was uh, Tell a Tale Tom. So no one knew whether to believe him or not, really. Oh, that's brilliant. Things move quickly. And on Thursday, May the 12th, local supporter Clive Pigden and midfielder Ian Wales made the drive to Druin, Ablett Country. Ian Wales explains how it all unfolded and how he became great friends with Gary Ablett. Yeah, it was at the footy club and also, as I said, I worked in the hotel and through the day you were never really that busy and Gary would sort of drop in and we'd play a few games of pool and a few games of darts, have a bit of lunch together or whatever and yeah, and then we'd sort of, we sort of clicked and got on pretty well from there, started going at Saturday nights and things on weekends, you'd be having a few beers and yeah, he was just a, an every day sort of bloke, same as anyone else, really, that I got on pretty well with and just built from there. Yeah, I, I was best man when he married Sue in 85. So, yeah, that was a bit of an honour to be part of that and met a few of his, few more of his family and a few more of his friends as we got into that, yeah. Game day, and despite the cold and wet conditions, the Saints supporters were out in force and keen to get a glimpse of high-profile recruit Gary Ablett, who arrived in town two days earlier. The opponent was Benalla, who was struggling and looked to be already out of finals contention, sitting in seventh place with just two wins. The conditions kept the game reasonably close, but with a 22-point halftime lead, the Saints were expected to cruise to victory. But when Layla and Ruckman Haley gold in the last quarter for Benalla, they had hit the front for the first time. The next 10 minutes were a genuine arm wrestle before Greg Nichols and David Mattisoni gold to get Myrtleford home by 12 points. Gary Ablett's debut was described in the local Myrtleford paper. Gary Ablett from Hawthorne was in the lineup, and it was unfortunate that his first appearance had to be in such cold, wet, and slippery conditions. However, he showed enough form to reveal that he is a strong and talented player who will have a big impact on the team when he has more match practice. His fierce tackling and accurate kicking to teammates was typical Hawthorne stuff. Round eight. An ex-Hawthorne and Fitzroy VFL player, Jared McCarthy, was debuting for Wangaratta Rovers when they hosted Myrtleford in a must-win for both sides. McCarthy had played 75 games with both the Hawks and Lions in a 150-game career. The result was not good for the Saints, with the Rovers holding sway all day despite a 10-goal cameo from Peter Russ Cutlick in the 133 to 107-point loss. Ablett was starting to show glimpses of magic but was yet to nail down a magical four-quarter effort. The match was marred by an ugly incident where Saints diminutive rover Terry Burgess was felled. Despite being awarded a free kick, the umpire made no report. Myrtleford cited the rover's player and two weeks later, Rod Newton was suspended for three weeks for his blow to Burgess. A general bye for the interleague clash at Shepparton against the Golden Valley, Greg Nichols was the only Myrtleford player selected. The Ovens are Murray lost by 24 points with Nichols kicking two goals and winning an award donated by North Melbourne. Andrew Douglas suffered a severe ankle injury in the under-18 curtain raiser. To complete the first half of the season, Myrtleford were at home to second place Lavington, and with Wangaratta just half a game behind them in sixth place, the Saints had to win. Win they did in the most emphatic fashion. In near perfect conditions on the first Saturday in winter, the Saints stunned the Blues in a thumping 77-point victory. Lavington was shell-shocked with the locals' ferocity and tackling with Ian Wiles, Tony Fisher and Gary Ablett leading the charge. With a dominant forward line of Russ Cutlick five goals, Frank Baldori kicked four and Nichols marking everything that came his way, they booted nine goals in each half 
and stamped themselves as a genuine flag contender. Next week was the Queen's birthday long weekend, and long it was, with the interleague clash against Bendigo at Lavington on the Saturday, and then two days later, round 10 of club football. It started well on Saturday, with the Ovens of Murray storming home to grab a 10-point win. Peter Russ Cutlick was the Saints' sole rep, and he booted four goals. The Ovens of Murray's win qualified them for the semi-finals in a month's time. So, come Monday, and a massive crowd of over 4,000 turned up at the McNamara Reserve to see if both Merleford and Aubrey could match the round one epic. Match it they did. In fact, they may have even topped it, with a pulsating match again being decided in the final minutes as Aubrey got home by two points, 117 to 115. Greg Nichols said it was a massive crowd and a deeply passionate community following that Myrtleford had. Um, it's an extremely passionate town. The beauty of it was that it was a very diverse community. You had the Italian immigrants. Uh, you just had a good mix of people. And not that we had a lot to do with the soccer team, but uh, they performed well as simultaneously. So there was just a good interaction, a love of the community, a love of the town. I just wanted to think we played an interleague game on the Saturday. Might have been against Bendigo. And then on the Monday, we played a full round of Correct. O&M. Yep. And we played Aubrey. It was the only game that we got beaten at, uh, at Myrtleford that year. That day, I can remember the crowd uh, because all the district clubs attended as well. It was one of the biggest crowds I've ever seen in the country. Mm. Well, it is the biggest crowd I've ever seen in the country home and away game. Uh, but that was a, a fabulous day that day. Uh, we all but won, but, um, yeah, they had so much depth. They were a very good team as well. But, yeah, it was just remarkable how not only Myrtleford, but the whole district gravitated to the club and, uh, and we were extremely well supported. The game had a dramatic conclusion, with the Saints fans furious with a last-second shot on goal from Peter Russ Cutlick being adjudicated a behind. A goal would have had won the game for the Saints. Irate supporters from both sides had to be separated as the teams left the field with the umpires also being forced into a hasty and uncomfortable retreat as tempers boiled over. Merleford had blown a five goal half-time lead as Aubrey threw goals to Barry Gipp and Brendan Wenke stole the points in a drama charge conclusion. Greg Nichols was best on ground with four goals while Jeff Mitchell Terry Burgess and Ian Wiles also stood up. The loss saw Myrtleford drop out of the top five for the first time since round one. Nichols continued his great form next week when the Saints overcame a tenacious Cora Rutherglen, winning a high-scoring encounter 26-11-167 to 19-12-126. Russ Cutlick booted nine goals to take his season's tally to 72 after just 11 rounds. Nichols kicked four, while Gary Ablett was finding form and fitness with a dominant display in the middle. Remarkably, Ablett, who went on to kick 1,031 goals in his VFL-AFL career, had yet to kick a goal in his first five matches with the Saints. He was, however, starting to get people talking and recruiters out of the VFL showing interest as the Saints moved back into the top five. Next up, the trip to Wangaratta in cold and wet conditions Gary Ablett lit up an otherwise dreary day. His first goal for the club put the Saints in front during the third term. With Greg Nichols out injured and off the ground, the Saints kicked six goals to nil to put the result to bed and start planning the annual prawn day the following day at the club rooms. These days were eagerly anticipated by all, with plenty of fun and games eventuating, with many a prank played on coach Greg Nichols and others. No one was off limits, as Jeff Mitchell and Greg Nichols both explained. Well, there was a few certain blokes who uh, decided that a good thing to do would be midnight mowing. Um, so uh, mainly over the pre-season when it was a bit warmer at night and um, we'd um, sort of pick out someone's lawn, throw three or four mowers in the back of a, a Land Cruiser, six blokes, three dogs, barbecue and a few snags and just go and mow a few strips of these people's lawns 
so that they had to um, the next day they had to finish it finish them off to tidy them up and uh, it was all good fun everyone took it you know really uh, reasonably well um, until one night we decided that we should do the coaches lawn and um, that really didn't go down too well Greg got a little bit angry with us um, mainly because I think his wife got angry with him and um, come Tuesday uh, he still had the shits at training um, and we trained so hard that Tuesday night that I didn't think we'd be able to get up on Saturday and play. Had a very inventive mind the boys so you had an imagination and but there was a, I think that just certainly didn't concern me a great deal. It didn't concern my wife either. But it just, it sort of exemplifies the fact that there was a strong bond. There was, they could, you know, perform a, a prank that some people might take offence at and so forth. But they knew that, they knew the boundaries. You know, they, you know, there were a lot of little, little things. Like there was a night when Bertie Hollins used to drive around in a, a Volkswagen and the boys picked it up and uh, I don't know if they told you this one, but they wedged it between the uh, the pylons of the uh, the dressing sheds at Myrtleford <laughs> and Bertie came out and he wasn't happy at all. So uh, there were no egos around that. Uh, around that, They all played to their strengths and played to a team structure. You know, we uh, one of the things that we were well, one of the first clubs ever to introduce a five-man forward line and and play a, a person behind the basically behind the ball. And you know, there were just little we we had to think outside the box to be competitive. Notwithstanding, we had a very good team, but we just didn't have the team depth. That uh, there were plenty of pranks, but there was it was all in good humour. The success that the club had and engaged success in premierships. Uh, gauge. There's plenty of other uh, formula that you can apply to dictate that to, or to determine whether you've been successful or not. And in my mind, uh, albeit I didn't feel this way when the siren blew uh, in that preliminary final, I, I look back and with tremendous pride. Uh, and but, you know, I, I think we were successful in our own right without actually membership. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, – uh, I look at country footy scores every Saturday night and yeah. it's the first one I go to. Any lingering effects from last Sunday's social outing certainly did not show as the Saints gave the visiting Yarrawonga a football lesson in a 110-point hammering. Greg Nichols booted 10 goals from full forward with some great marking on the back of some superb delivery from the mercurial Gary Ablett, as well as Tony Fisher, Jeff Mitchell and Robbie Wright. Peter Russ-Cutlick swapped roles with Nichols and starred at centre-half forward. For the first time in many years, the Saints had won all three grades of football. Jeff Mitchell said Ablett, after a slow start, was running into fitness and form and had worked very hard with plenty of running and boxing. Yeah, he probably wasn't super fit when he got here, but uh, he he trained really hard, like, um, he didn't like that uh, W word, work, but as far as um, training, he trained really hard. Like he'd um, run a lot. He spent a lot of time in the gym, but also um, he spent a lot of time out with Stevie Dale, who was a boxing coach yep. and did a lot of boxing. Did you ever jump in the ring with him, Mitch? Uh, uh, there was actually one Monday, Greg, gave us the Monday off training and Gary said to me, um, hey Mitch, that'd be good, we'd go and have a spa. I said, that'd be fantastic, yes. Um, I'll meet you there about 5.30. He said, that'd be wonderful. That'll be terrific, I can't wait. Anyway, so at the time, Bob McNamara, who was our full back, yeah. had a gym in town with a big spa. So I've gone from work, rocked down to Bob's, stripped off into the togs, and into the spa. Sat there for about an hour and a half till I was pruned. No ablet. So I got out, had a shower, gone home. Next night at training, he comes up to me and goes, you weak bastard, where were you last night? I said, don't you say that to me. Where were you? He said, I was waiting for you. I said, no, no, I was there in the spa. You asked Bobby. He said, oh, mate, I didn't mean that sort of spa. I meant in the ring spa. I said, well, it would have been the same. I said, it would have been exactly the same result, Gary. I wouldn't have been in there. Club football had a bye for the Winfield semi-final at the Aubrey Sports Ground, 
where the visitors eliminated the Abington Murray by 15 points in a great contest. The game came at a huge cost to Myrtleford, with star full forward Peter Russ Cutlick suffering a nasty laceration to his calf that would keep him out of football for a month and put a huge dent in his chances of kicking a century of goals. Gary Ablett made his Abington Murray representative debut and was named in the best with a strong showing on a wing, while Bobby McNamara was superb in defence. A round 14 trip to Martin Park in Wodonga turned into one of the best games of the season as Myrtleford came from behind to win in sensational fashion. With no Russ Cutlick, it was Greg Nichols and Gary Ablett who got the Saints over the line after being almost five goals down in the final quarter. Ablett, who was now at peak fitness, was unstoppable with his power running and long kicking into the high-marking Nichols, who bagged six goals, a highlight of the game. Jeff Mitchell chimed in with three goals, while Terry Burgess, Tony Fisher, Peter Light and Louis Seminara all worked hard in the narrow seven-point win. Next up, a home game against North Aubrey, with a spot in the top three on offer as the season's biggest crowd of 4,500 turned up and they did not leave disappointed. Saints midfielder Jeff Mitchell talks about the crowds who came along to those games in 1983. Oh, it was fantastic. It really was fantastic. You know, we, we were playing normal home and away games in front of 2,500 people and the noise was just unbelievable. It was great. It was really hard to describe. I, I don't know how they go, you know, like you know, AFL players running out in front of those huge crowds every week, but, geez, it was exciting for me running out there. And I know home games, they used to play up there Kazali as as we ran out. And um, it was just awesome. Used to just get the old hairs right up. Bert Holland's filling in at full forward for Russ Cutlick, kick five goals, while Terry Burgess and big Laurie Parallon dominated the midfield clearances. The local crowd were on edge when North Aubrey stretched its leads to 12 points in the third quarter until one G. Ablett, who had been relatively quiet, put on a top-shelf second-half clinic. The 33-point win was one of the Saints' best, with Jeff Ramsdale, Brett Garoni and Robbie Wright all contributing to a great team effort. The trip down to the Hume Highway was next, and a determined Benalla proved extremely hard to shake off in a high-scoring contest. The 20-point win did not come easy, with Benalla hitting the front in the final quarter, putting a scare through the Saints' camp. Terry Burgess, who was nursing an injury, played a role up forward and proved his class with seven goals, while Bert Hollands and Brett Garoni continued their good form with four goals each. Round 17, and it was Wangaratta Rovers making the trip up the valley to take on the informed Saints, who were aiming for its seventh straight win and second place on the ladder. The Rovers were brimming with confidence after having knocked off ladder leader Zorbury the week before. However, they knew a loss to Myrtleford and their season would be all but finished. As expected, it was another monster crowd who packed into the McNamara Reserve and they witnessed real finals football as both teams kicked 10 goals in the first half. The Saints' second half was excellent. They kicked nine goals to the Wangaratta Rovers five and the victory took them into second place and forced the Rovers to miss the finals for the first time in 16 years. Despite Peter Russ Cutlick returning, Bert Holland stayed at full forward and kicked seven goals. Russ Cutlick and Ablett both kicked three, while Steve Martin, Peter Light and David Mattisoni were outstanding defenders. Rovers midfielder Shane Robertson played on Ablett and he recalls that unbelievable day. He was talking about how he left Hawthorne and so there was, he was obviously a high-profile player in the Evans and Murray and had at that well, that's done quite a bit of, you know, had done quite a, a lot of spectacular, miraculous things and they yep. still talk about him today. Um, but so I had to, and I didn't know too much about him because again, yeah, so that day it was a bit interesting. There was talk before the game in our team meeting about him and I think he'd been in, there was rumours he'd been in a bit of trouble and, you know, this guy, you know, takes easy options and all this sort of stuff. I can remember early in the game, the ball was being kicked in and I was I was sort of manning him. He was one of those guys you just, it was hard to play on because if you're manning, he wouldn't do anything. And then the next minute, he's 20 yards away. He was yeah. very quick, very powerful. So he charged off and he shirt front of one of his bloke, he's feeding him. So that sort of rat- rattled me a bit. So, but, but in the third quarter, the game was in the balance and he'd um, the ball was kicked above my head and he was behind me. And he took a mark and I hit him late. Thing, I suppose. And in those days, he only got a tip zone murder penalty, so it was pretty common back in those days because it wasn't a penalty. And he was still inside the centre square at Myrtleton, so he's a long way out. 
I got the Tisto meters, and as you do, you look around, you think, uh, I looked at the goals and thought, yes, no worries, got, got, got away with it. <laughs> and then it's funny, in any sport, you know, you go listen to someone hit a golf ball, someone hit a cricket ball, you can tell how well they hit it by the sound they make. And uh, he's ran in with a torp and gone bang, and I thought, shit, that sounded all right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've turned around just so I've been through the goals and he held, giving away a goal. Wow. Anyway, was probably only four or five minutes later, he came further out and he did it again. And uh, I would reckon on the day, it probably outstated him quite easily. The final round was a trip over the border and a clash with Lavington, who, like the Saints, needed a win to grab the double chance. The match was a genuine arm wrestle throughout with Lavington leading by four points at the last change. Second spot was up for grabs. Both sides traded golds at the start of the last term, and when Myrtleford kicked its fourth goal of the quarter, they led with 15 minutes to play. Lavington then went on a gold-scoring frenzy, booting the last six goals of the game to run out 34-point winners and secure their double chance. This elevated Lavington into second position and dropped Myrtleford back to third, as North Aubrey had been beaten by Wodonga. Well, third they thought they had. However, something was going on at North Aubrey that put the cat amongst the pigeons. North Aubrey successfully reopened a case from June 18 when Benalla had beat North Aubrey. North Aubrey claimed Benalla had played an unregistered player in that game, Neil Drake. The case at the time had been dismissed by the Owens Murray League and the Appeals Board. At the reopening of the case on the eligibility of Neil Drake, the Murray Border Appeals Committee upheld the appeal and granted the four match points go to North Aubrey. Myrtleford delegates Gary Burns and Terry Burgess Sr. were furious and disappointed that the innocent victims in this case, Myrtleford, were the ones to suffer. This dropped the Saints back into the elimination final for the next week and they would play Wodonga, while the four points North Aubrey secured elevated them into the qualifying final against Lavington and the double chance. Aubrey finished minor premiers despite being humiliated in round 16 when sixth place Wangaratta Rovers walloped them by an extraordinary margin of 127 points. It was one of those years. The goal kicking title was shared by Peter Russ Cutlick and Daryl Bakes, both on 80. Bakes kicked 10 goals in the final round to draw level. North Aubrey wizard Peter Westland was next on 78. Finals fever was smothered all over Myrtleford and the Alpine region. The supporters, the largest in the competition, turned up in thousands for the elimination final at the Aubrey Sports Ground. Their two previous meetings were close wins to the Saints and this clash again was going to script with just five points to lead to Myrtleford at half time. Jeff Ramsdale and Laurie Larson were late withdrawals through illness for this game, but in general, the Saints were fit and went into the half time pretty confident. Wodonga played its best football in the third quarter and stretched its lead to 16 points before Terry Burgess gold. Then Greg Nichols landed a 55 metre bomb after the three quarter siren to get the margin back to just four points. A stirring three quarter time speech by Nichols and a boisterous Merleford supporter base drove the Saints to new heights as they banged on six goals to three to win a ripper by 11 points. Nichols and Burgess both kicked five goals, while Bert Hollands and Peter Russ Cutlick slotted three apiece. Jeff Mitchell, with over 30 possessions, was best of field, while Laurie Parolin, Ian Wiles and Bob McNamara were outstanding. One down, three to go. That was the war cry in the packed Aubrey Tigers club rooms post-match, as already the attention turned to enemy number one, North Aubrey, who lost to Lavington to set up a cutthroat semi-final at Wangaratta Rovers Oval, next Sunday. Perfect conditions greeted the 4,500 spectators on the first Sunday in September, with Jeff Ramsdale back in the side for the Saints. Nothing separated both sides in the early stages, with North Aubrey leading by a point at quarter time and five points at the long break. They looked to be getting on top of the Saints with a two-goal lead at three-quarter time, with its pace and run starting to make inroads. Golds midway through the final term to Anthony McTavish, Peter Westland, his sixth, and Bill Lee Mulroney took the lead out to 22 points with just seven minutes remaining. Entering time on, Gary Ablett gold to reduce the margin to 16 points. Not long after, Tony Fisher evaded several opponents, hairballed to Burgess, and he gold, margin back to 10. 
Myrtleford supporters had started leaving the ground minutes before, but all of a sudden it was game on and many turned around and were charging back through the gates. Terry Burgess said he could see the supporters starting to leave. And pretty much goal for goal uh, early in the quarter and um, you know, before yep. you know it, most of the quarter's been eaten up and 20-odd points down and, and the clock's starting to get close to that red zone and you could sort of feel that you know, the officers probably slipped past us and you know we even noticed spectators started leaving the ground and um, then all of a sudden you know uh, I might have kicked a goal I think um, I think Bimbo might have kicked another goal yep. um, and because what was happening then was we were kicking goals and the ball was going straight back to the centre and um, momentum can swing pretty quick when that's all that's happening. Um, uh, Gary Ablett decided to put on a five-minute show and um, we kick another couple and I'm probably pretty sure now that if uh, the North will be full back at the time, if he had a anywhere else other than where Gary Ablett was, <laughs> they'd, have probably, they'd have probably won the game. But unfortunately, <laughs> they kept kicking it back there. He kept marking it, kicking goals by that stage and out of nowhere, we the victory and you know people started rushing back into ground and uh, but what was what was unbelievable was the fact that most of those people somehow made their way into the, the opposition change rooms at Wang Rovers and that's yep. very very small and you could hardly breathe and you could hardly even get in of course and that set the scene um, for the following week. After a Burgess point, Ian Wales sent the crowd into raptures of delight as the margin was now just three points with two minutes left. Ablett took a great mark from a North Forbury defensive clearance, but the long-range shot missed to the size in the crowd. Margin was still two points. From the kick-in, North Forbury fullback Terry Farrell again pumped the ball long, and again it was in Ablett's space as he swooped on a loose ball at full pace and drilled home a long-range goal. Myrtleford were in front with just 30 seconds left. North Forbury gained a quick clearance, and that was mopped up by the magnificent Saints defence. As they went forward, the siren echoed across the ground as players and supporters went berserk. They had performed a miracle comeback victory. Ablett, with 24 possessions, three goals, and his last quarter heroics had not only supporters at the ground spellbound, but some VFL recruiters who were in attendance. In the second semi-final the previous day, Lavington, despite kicking two less goals than Aubrey, got home in a thriller by two points and into the grand final. This would mean Aubrey would play a rampant Myrtleford in the preliminary final at Wangaratta Showgrounds the following Sunday. The Saints were, however, without Steve Martin, who was suspended for striking North Aubrey's John Smith. The match also celebrated one of Myrtleford's favourite sons, Jeff Mitchell's 100th senior match, all consecutive from the moment he went from the under-18s straight into first grade. Aubrey Tigers received a massive boost when star defender and 1982 Morris medalist Rod Coelli made a surprise return just five weeks after breaking his jaw at the same ground. Windy and showers were on order with the odd burst of sunshine as one of the most bizarre preliminary finals was played out before another huge crowd. Fast forward, last quarter. With the game in the balance and Myrtleford leading in the last term, the Saints' Robbie Wright and Tiger Steve Doolan were involved in a scuffle. Suddenly, a spectator ran onto the ground and punched Wright, who retaliated and it was on for young and old as several blows were traded as a bemused crowd looked on. Police arrived as the spectator was leaving the arena. The umpires had to call the play back and have a bounce of the ball where the incident happened. This, as Jeff Mitchell was running into an open forward line and the Saints leading by 10 points. The spectator was later identified and charged as the brother of Steve Doolan. Later that year in court, Mr Doolan got a rather good result, with all things considered, being placed on a $20 bond and adjourned the matter for 12 months by Magistrate Mr Jack Craven. Constable Ewell of the Wangaratta Police described seeing the on-field scuffle between the players and then seeing a spectator run onto the ground. The spectator hit one of the players with a clenched fist to the face and then a series of blows followed, Constable Yule explained. Steve Doolan, in his evidence, said he had his nose broken in an earlier scuffle. He had tackled Myrtleford player David Mattisoni and then said Wright attacked him from the one side. This Mr Doolan, the spectator who entered the field, said was a catalyst for him to run on the ground and protect his brother, who he feared was in a spot of bother with Robbie Wright apparently holding the upper hand. Mr Craven, in handing down his verdict, said that Doolan's actions on running onto the ground were stupid 
I have always thought Ovens and Murray footballers capable of looking after themselves without people coming onto the ground. However, Mr Craven was impressed by Doolan's character references and a lack of prior convictions, plus a strong reference from his employer. Well, there you go. Sounds like both lads landed a few. Now, back to the action because there was plenty of other action happening on the field in a belter of a contest. Back to the first quarter. It was a rugged and tough one, and it ended with one of the greatest ever goals kicked in an Ovens and Murray final. Tigers defender, Brendan Wanky explained. I got a kick out from fullback from, I think it was Rod Coelho. Co had come back in and uh, halfback flank, went back and kicked long over the centre and sort of towards centre and half forward. And um, Ablett, Gary uh, took the mark and went back. And uh, we sort of thought, oh, that's the end of the quarter. But um, he, uh, he had different ideas. So he went, probably went back three or four steps. And then, as uh, only Ablett could do, went kicked the ball straight through, straight through the middle. How far out would have he been? Gee, about 75, 80 metres, I reckon, at wow. the time. Yeah. The old torpedo punt. Yes. An inaccurate Aubrey should have led more by more than seven points at half-time as both sides had booted six goals. Myrtleford narrowed the gap to just three points at the final change as both clubs' large band of supporters yelled themselves hoarse. The final quarter started like the first quarter ended when Gary Ablett again left the crowd spellbound with his brilliance. He won the ball out of the middle from the opening bounce, brushed aside would-be defenders, had one bounce and let fly with a 65-metre bomb that put the Saints in front. Both sides traded two goals each as the game ticked over to the 20-minute mark and Merleford leading by eight points as things were at boiling point after the brawl earlier in the quarter. The defending Premiers found that little bit extra as the fatigued and battle-weary Merleford hung on for dear life before the damn wall burst as Aubrey kicked the final four goals of a gripping contest and end the grand final dream of the courageous Saints. Ian Wales capped off a brilliant final series with a great performance, while Ablett, in his 15th and final game for the Saints, was nothing short of sensational. Jeff Ramsdale, David Mattisoni, Peter Light and Terry Burgess were others to play outstanding games as 1983 season finished for the Saints. Burgess, who rolled an ankle in the final quarter, later that evening became the fifth Myrtleford player to win the coveted Ovens and Murray Football League Best and Fairest Award, the Morris Medal. It capped off a brilliant year for the 22-year-old Rover, who polled 24 votes to finish 10 votes clear of five players, all equal on 14 votes. Gary Ablett, with 10 votes, was the next best for Myrtleford. Burgess polled in 12 of the 17 games he played in. He made his senior debut as a 15-year-old and had played 90 senior matches. Burgess, who was on crutches that night after injuring his ankle, said it was a big night. We had the night of winning the Morris Medal and the aftermath of that, had a busload of Myrtle footy club people, you know, come back to home and, uh, you know, I don't think we got to bed till about <laughs> 5 o'clock in the morning. And, <laughs> You know, and then we've gone from that waking up to yeah, having on that roll out of that straight into Mad Monday like it was just <laughs> a huge time. Yeah, uh, wow, eh? Great to be part of. Weighing just 59 kilos and 170 centimetres tall, Burgess also a few weeks later took out the club best and fairest for the second time. He polled 116 votes, double that of the next person, runner-up Gary Ablett on 58. Greg Nichols was third on 56, followed by Peter Russ Cutlick 52, and Ian Wiles 45. Burgess also took out the Bordemale Player of the Year and was remarkably snubbed by interleague selectors for the three games in 1983. Teammate Jeff Mitchell described Burgess, and Burgess described what it was like playing in the midfield with Gary Ablett. Oh, Burgess, yeah. Look, I, I, I grew up with Burgess. I think he might be a year younger than me. Um, but we went through like our junior football together on opposition teams and we went to different schools. So we played against each other a lot until we got into the thirds at Myrtleford, into the under-18s. But he was um, he, he was only small, like he might have been 60 kilos when his jumper was wet. But geez, he was a tough little fella. He, you know, we tried, we, we try and protect him as much as we could, but, you know, every now and then, you know, someone would get him. And 
he just bounced up, but he had such fantastic skills and, and his aerobic ability to just run and run and run. Well, we had a pretty strong combination at the time, and you look back now and certainly a combination um, really complemented one another. There were Gary and uh, Bimbo Wales and myself were the starting line-up. And, um, you know, Bimbo was a strong and aggressive, skillful player that you know, loved the contested ball. And, of course, Gary could do anything, and, um, which allowed me then to probably tap into my biggest strength with my fitness and outside run and the combination between the three of us sort of worked perfectly. And uh, there was only one plan, though. It was if we won the footy, it was get it to Gary because uh, there was a fair chance something was going to happen. So, look, I'm not sure I was convinced that he could go that far, um, but he had all the attributes needed in a player to go that far. Having not known any history about Gary in terms of where he was in equal development, ethic was like or any of that sort of stuff, um, but just from the day dot when he turned up with Murdoch, like he was a powerful, built athlete, and big, strong legs, jump, like jump over players' heads, um, he yep. kicked left and right foot, you know, 70 metres, it didn't matter, like, he just had all the attributes you would think would be what you would need in an AFL player, and I guess getting his second environment that probably um, he certainly grasped with both hands has probably gone on to be uh, arguably one of the best players that have ever played the game. Look, Gary was just one of the one of the crew. Um, now, we were pretty lucky at the time. We had about, could have played predominantly that year finals and 17 or 18 were homegrown players and we'd been together for quite a, quite a number of years and, you know, he's turned up and just slotted in, basically been one of the crew. You know, he trained or both nights he'd come to function, get involved with his stuff with the other people that were there, didn't know any different about Gary and certainly over time one of the probably didn't resonate too well with the whole community up there at the time was the the, um, the rumours and that about that he was only up there in jail totally nonsense was no true in it whatsoever I'm glad that you know, he another opportunity to make the most of talent did Russ Cutlick finished with 92 goals for the season Greg Nichols kicked 71 while Burgess showed his value up forward by kicking 53 goals to complete a brilliant season Gary Ablett who kicked 1074 goals in his 259 game VFL AFL career, including state matches, post his Myrtleford career, he only kicked 14 goals for that year. He did not kick a goal in his first five games for the Saints. He did, however, during the final series, kick three of the best goals ever seen, which are still spoken about and entrenched into Ovens Murray Football League folklore. After a long and tricky negotiation, Hawthorne finally cleared Gary Ablett to Geelong for the 1984 season making his debut against Fitzroy in round one. Greg Nichols explained how Geelong got their man. I rang Bill McMaster, who was, who's still a friend to this day. Bill recruited me. Uh, we both had a love of horse racing as well as footy. Yeah. Uh, we still discuss horse racing <laughs> to this day. <laughs> Um, you know, he's a man late 80s now, but uh, Bill and a fellow called Billy Delzeal, who had who actually played for Myrtleford um, a long time earlier. It was a recruiting guy for uh, for Geelong. Um, and I just rang them up and said, listen, this this bloke is uh, one of the best footballers I've ever seen. I'm not just talking about him as a Murray, but he was, he just needed to get totally fit and committed and he could do anything because he had no fear, Gary. He, uh, confidence wasn't an issue with him. He just went out. He had the original white line fever and I don't mean that in a, a pejorative way. I mean it in the sense that he uh, was game time. He went out in the ground and he performed and he was just a, uh, an amazing footballer. Uh, and it's easy to say that now, but uh, in hindsight with the career that he's had, uh, but he was something out of the box and we were very lucky a little country town like that was able to secure someone of his uh, his capability but obviously a lot of luck uh, formed part of that decision and Lenny Ablett being his uncle was uh, the catalyst that brought him to town yeah, all I know is that uh, his behaviour around the club was first class uh, the players loved him yep. in his own way I think he, he had a respect for them as well Um but they just – Gary's a unique uh, character. Yeah, no, he was, uh, he was wonderful to, to have the opportunity to coach and yeah. uh, I often uh, 
say the only thing I've got in common with Malcolm Blythe is that we had Gary Ablett and him couldn't win a premiership. So <laughs> it's uh, you know, it, it's phenomenal to have that much talent in one man. But his, his defensive qualities uh, probably weren't as uh, honed as his uh, attacking abilities. But uh, God, he brought a lot of delight to a lot of people over the years. Nine games later, Gary Ablett was selected to play for Victoria against Western Australia at Subiaco Oval in Perth on July 17, 1984. His Victorian debut stunned the football world when he kicked eight goals from a wing in a best-on-ground performance. WA beat Victoria 142-138 to in what is still regarded as one of the greatest ever matches of AFL football. Ian Wales said the Saints got great value from arguably the greatest ever player to play the game. And his time in Myrtleford had plenty of fun and games and also dispelled the negative myths and rumours about his time in Myrtleford. His thoughts were also echoed by Jeff Mitchell. As far as I know, he was on about the same as me. I think it was about $150 a game. There's an ex-coach here that went through a few filing cabinets, Andy Dale, and come across an old contract that would have been in mid-90s and I think he still got the contract and sent $150 a game on it. Wow, not bad value, was it? Good value. Yeah, <laughs> good value. He ended up coming running up in our best and fairest after missing the first six or seven games, so we probably got over the odds a bit there for us. The, that pre-season, Terry Burgess and myself and a couple of others from the O&M did a pre-season at North Melbourne and when Gary did arrive, he probably wasn't in the best of shape, whether it was a bit of a standoff at Hawthorne and didn't want to play there, I'm not too sure. But as he got fitter and fitter, he just just a six foot two or six foot three, 90 kilos, could run like he could and kick at both feet 60, 70 metres. This made you think, Jesus, he, he's as good as anyone as I've, I've ever seen, really. As the more and more fitter he got, kicked eight from the wing. Yeah, not a bad debut in the state team, I wouldn't think. Well, how do you, how do you get picked up? Because, like, you know, obviously, it, like, it was a. I'm not sure he was coaching at the time, Victoria. But were they were they watching him early days? You reckon? Oh, the story I heard was Ted Whitten was doing a fair bit of work for the Geelong radio station, and he was doing all the Geelong games, and he was the one that sort of pushed Rablet to get into the state team. Yeah, okay. That, that was what I heard. I suppose Teddy had a bit of clout in those days, didn't he? Who played and who I, didn't? I think he did, yeah. Right up till the day he died, I reckon he did. But anyway. Fair to say. Well, he, he did have a little uh, job there for a little while where I think one of the first things Mick Deneen got him to do at the Mill for Tire and Battery Service was go to Melbourne to pick up some tyres. He gave him the car and hooked up a trailer and sent him off and he decided he'd uh, go the long way and went out through Druin and caught up with a few family members and things and got back about three or four days later. Did he have the tyres? <laughs> He had the tyres, I think, on board, but I don't know how long they'd been in the trailer for. Yeah, the Lawnmower Brigade, and yeah, there was a fellow that played that year, Tony, his name is, he also worked at Middleford Tire and Battery, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he connected up a penny bunger to uh, Greg Nichols's battery in his car, and after training that night, there was about 15 of us all standing around waiting for Greg to start his car, and when he did, this little bit of dynamite went off under the bonnet, and... <laughs> Greg, Greg sort of sat upright and jumped out of the car and didn't know what was going on. And we had a bit of extra training for a few nights after that. But anyway, it was all, all, all in good fun. It was a great year all round, really. Like the only uh, one thing that people forget is at the end of round 18, we actually finished third and Benella had played against North Albury in about round six and played an unregistered player. North Albury put in a protest and by about Monday night after after round 18, the points were given over to North Albury and they went to third and we went to fourth. I still reckon if we had have, had have come from third, we might have went a bit further. But anyway, you never really know the result. So you didn't, didn't find out till a couple of days after. So you would have played, because I think you got beat, not by a lot, by Lavington round 18, but still finished third. And all of a sudden, yeah. two days later, your um, elimination final. Uh, yeah, I think it was the Monday night that the appeal went to the tribunal or whatever it went to. We found out on the late Monday night or Tuesday that we'd be playing an elimination final rather than a qualifying final. And you won the elimination final and the North Albury got beat with their double chance, so that set up that uh, clash down at Wangaroa yeah. in the first semi. I'd imagine there was a fair bit of spirit in that game and uh, a, a fair bit of uh, fair bit of uh, vigour from the Myrtleford lads. Yeah, I was, we were down in that game in the last quarter and we kicked the last three goals or so to 
to win it. Everyone talks about the Gary Ablett goal that year, but funnily enough, I remember kicking the goal that put us in front. But anyway, true. that never, never seems to get a mention, that. It's all about <laughs> Gary Ablett. <laughs> oh, a bit hard on you, mate, isn't it? So. <laughs> it is a bit tough. Been hard to live with that time to do a lot of the things he's been meant to have done. Like, he never missed training runs or anything that I can remember. And as I said, coming to the pub through the week and we'd play darts. He lived in a house out Buffalo Creek Road with his wife and young Gary, I think it was, at that stage. So, yeah, I, I, I get a bit sort of – well, I did get annoyed still, but I did at the time that he, he didn't wasn't involved in anything like that. I wasn't do any time in jail when he was up here. He lived in Buffalo Creek Road, and as far as I know, that's not a prison. There's one rumour – that really gets my goat is that uh, Gary was in Beechworth Prison um, for a crime and that he was playing for Myrtleford on weekend release. Um, that couldn't be further from the truth. Gary lived in town. Um, he spent all his time in town. To the best of my knowledge, he never spent a day in Beechworth Prison. Um, if anyone wants to come and see me, I can take him to the house that he lived in. He used to drive around town. And he's uh, 67 or 68 Mustang convertible with uh, the rusted floor and the mats dragging on the ground. Um, and there's no way known that he was uh, in prison. And um, I've heard it so many times. I've even heard it on, on a radio show coming out of Aubrey. And uh, just, uh, it just makes my blood boil every time I hear it. But the reason he came up here was because Paul Gaz was only 21 when he came up here and he, he was a little bit wild um, and he was down in drawing and getting into a bit of strife with, him with the wrong crew. Um, and his father and Lenny Ablett, Myrtleford's um, long-serving president and um, saviour on a lot of occasions, um, they got together and decided it'd be good if Gary came up and lived with um, Uncle Len for a while. Yeah, well, like, when he got here, he couldn't play football at all, you know. <laughs> he was absolutely hopeless, but we taught him fairly well. <laughs> but he loved his fishing, he loved his shooting, so, you know, Myrtleford suited him. Yeah. Yeah, he had lots of space. He lived just on the edge of town on a bit of a few acres, and he had, you know, room to do those things. Beautiful. And he thrived, and, and his daughter was born here, um, you know, like, it's just, um, he was just a family man here. He, he was just a good bloke. So that ended one hell of a ride for the Merleford Football Club that went so close to adding a second premiership to its cabinet. The massive crowds that flocked to Merleford matches were treated to a brilliant attacking brand of football, with the Saints in their 21 matches scoring 89 points or more on 19 occasions. Sadly for Merleford, they still haven't added that second premiership to its cabinet, but the passion and support around in 1983 is still around today as the Saints are again building up to something special in the town that never gives in and keeps on fronting up. 1983 coach Greg Nichols summed it up best. Like the idea of the underdog, all town competing against powerhouses like uh, Albury and Wangaratas and the, and the Lamingtons of the world, I think it's a, it's a nice story. A lot of country footy clubs take the easy step and drop back to district footy leagues, but uh, they're taken the courageous decision to remain relevant in a in a major league and you know I'd like them to succeed. Well, there you go. What a remarkable and amazing year it was for Myrtleford and the Ovens and Murray Football League. And again, a massive thank you for the wonderful support of this episode from Terry Cartwright Kitchens, whose owner Jeff Mitchell turned down a promising lawn mowing career in the 80s for his superb cabinet making skills that are the best in the Ovens and Kiwa Valley regions at Terry Cartwright Kitchens. And don't forget, if you want your great sporting moment brought back to life, get in touch with us at yoursportandmedia.com or give us a call on 0483 807 846. But for now, stay safe and look after each other.